You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome, welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastablasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Rich, it is wonderful to be back with you this week. How are you doing down under? Very good news, but very hot. It's decided to turn on the sunshine um, in December down here in Australia, so it's boiling here at the moment, but uh, I've got all of the fans going and um, I hope it, hope it cools down a bit. Yeah, well, actually, I'm also in a place right now where it usually is pretty hot, even in even in December. But there's a nice, cool breeze coming through these days, so uh, I'm not struggling as much as you are. Rich, uh, as usual, before we dive into um, a question or two that we have, and also um, a a very interesting topic uh, that uh, that you brought along. I just wanted to find out a little bit of what's been on your radar recently, what you're finding interesting uh, when you look at the world uh, at large. Well, well, what I found was that um, I, I had a pretty good result for November, and that's because my portfolio is, um, doesn't have much bond exposure. So I came out of November a bit cocky, thinking that um, you know I'd done quite well in comparison to a lot of the other CTAs that might have had a bit of difficulty because of the, the bonds over the month of November. And so here I was, a bit cocky at the end of November, and then the first week of December erupted on my screens. And uh, yes, uh, my my beautiful commodities, so we, which um, had offered these great trends, and my yen pairs, they were absolutely hammered. Um, so um, fortunately, Friday gave me a bit of a respite. But uh, yes, this month um, might not be the stellar month that I'm hoping for. I think we all felt looking at the screens yesterday. Uh, thank God it's Friday, <laughs> and the and the unemployment numbers uh, came out a little bit uh, different than people expected. Speaking of that, I did notice yesterday in the unemployment report that the unemployment rate of three point seven percent marked the twenty second straight month of U.S. employment or unemployment, I should say, below four percent, and that's the longest streak since the nineteen sixties. And by comparison, the unemployment rate never once fell below 4% in the glory days of the 1980s and 1990s when everything was supposedly much easier. So it's interesting to see what the numbers are telling us and how people are feeling about the current economic environment, which I'm not so sure people think is, is such a great one at this point. Now, agreed. It's a tough environment at the moment, very uncertain as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, leave the trials and tribulations for December until the end of the month so we know what the final score is. But in um, but speaking of trend following, of course, as we normally do, um, you already touched upon it a little bit. Uh, it has been an interesting uh, start to December. Certainly fixed income uh, markets have been, um, you know, challenging for the longer term trend followers maybe some of the shorter term models uh, have already turned and have uh, have done well but of course then again the number yesterday may suggest that perhaps it's a little bit too early to uh, completely conclude that the fed uh, is done and also if you look at a i was looking at a, a chart for just one week price movements and you also mentioned that there were some very large percentage changes, not in isolation, but actually if you look across the board, markets generally seem to be kind of releasing a bit of volatility at the moment, of course, not least spurred by the biggest one-day rally in almost a year on Thursday after the Japanese Monetary Authority offered a surprisingly clear hint at a shift in policy inflicting you know, some pain, to say the least, on short positions in the yen and, and also uh, maybe uh, long positions in uh, Japanese equities. But there were also some other commodities that didn't do so well last week from a trend-filling perspective. Sugar, I think, was one of them. Uh, you may know a few others. And so we have started uh, December off on, on a soft note, um, but uh, we'll see how it all ends up. Clearly, it's not going to be uh, the same as as last year, where CTAs in general were having a, a great year. This has been much more challenging. Um, and I guess this is perhaps, 
our last conversation in 2023, um, uh, except for the group conversations, uh, Rich. So if you have any thoughts on on the year as a whole, I would love to love to hear your thoughts. Well, after um, the prior year, this year's certainly been a, a year of stagnation for me. Um, you know, um, early in the year, uh, I had some sort of um, uh, positive results, but um, over the course of the year, it's been quite a challenging year for me. I, I you know, I might um, come out of this 12-month period with a, a slight sort of um, increase in portfolio value, but um, apart from that, it's just been one of stagnation for me. Um, but, um, you know, with, with this change of trend that's occurred now, you never know where that might lead. Um, this, this early December um, change might be signalling something coming. Um, that's the thing about um, this game we play, Niels. Um, we just never know. But I was hoping that uh, December might uh, give me a, 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 a bit of a more solid result for the end of the year, but I, I don't necessarily think it might translate that way. So at, at probably at best, I might sort of come out of here at break even. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. What I've noticed this year is that my trend barometer has really been stocking a very, um, you know, neutral to a negative range almost uh, all year. Very few observations were above 50 uh, in contrast to last year where we had quite a few of them. So, I mean, I think all of all, I mean, it's confirmed the markets haven't been as trending, but I imagine that you've enjoyed uh, the recent Bitcoin rally. I think you do trade Bitcoin, don't you? Yes, I, I I have, Niels. That's probably one of the only bright sparks on my portfolio at the moment, uh, the Bitcoin. You know, I was hoping that there'd be a bit of a good solid gold move, but I had a nasty little spike this week um, and uh, it doesn't seem to have translated into much. But uh, yeah. Quite a huge move in gold, actually. I mean, I think it was like down oh, $200 massive. in one day. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well. All right. Um, from a performance point of view, and this is as of Thursday evening, um, it actually, when you look at the indices, I would say it really doesn't look very bad so far this year. Um, the Beta 50 is down 83 basis points in December. It's the only down 1.81% for the year. And it was in comparison up almost 15% last year. Sochi and CTA down 84 basis points, down three and a half for the month, uh, sorry, for the year, but it was up 20% last year. The trend index down about a percent in December, down 4.7% uh, year to date. It was up more than 27% last year. And the short-term traders index are having a little bit uh, of, uh, of a comeback, up 44 basis points this month and down 1.79% for the year. And that was up 11.27% uh, last year. MSCI World, of course, doing well, up 78 basis points, up 17% for the year. World Government Bonds also still doing well, up 89 basis points. Um, and uh, and finally, the S&P total, uh, 500 total return index up 83 basis points and up 21.8% this year. So... With that in mind, we, we're going to take a couple of questions from Adam, Rich, before we jump into your um, into your topics. Um, so let me see what Adam wrote here. He wrote a couple of questions for Rich next time he's on the show. I hear the phrase loose pants quite a lot, which makes sense. My question is how loose is too loose with regards to the distance between the entry price and the initial stop? I see an obvious trade-off in that a tighter initial stops will result in a lower win rate. However, larger profit multiples on the winning trades, whereas wider initial stops may result in improved win rate, i.e. not getting stopped out unnecessarily. However, lower profit multiples on winning trades. As such, how do you strike a balance without overfitting the data to ensure the winners produce enough profits to pay for the many losers? I feel backtesting this is the simple solution. However, worries that this uh, may result in curve fitting to the past. From experience, is there a typical range of ATR multiples that appears more reasonable over the long term, say, i.e. two to three ATRs or say 10 uh, plus ATRs? What are your thoughts on this, Rich? It was a great question by Adam. And um, look, just, just to put this into context, so... Um, Adam's right. The way the way I deal with this is in the backtest environment, but um, the way I do it is that um, 
I'm applying, um, I'm determining my, um, my stop distance by a- applying my models over very large intensive data sets. So I'm not just applying it over one market because my models um, I refer to as being universal models because it's targeting this feature called outliers, which are universally present within any liquid market. It's not looking for specific properties of the markets. It's looking for these um, tail events that occur in these markets. So the way I do it, therefore, is I might have a a 30-year history on um, 100 markets. And um, by um, undertaking my my process of testing my models, um, I'm identifying the optimal um, stop loss across that entire selection of markets. So if you could imagine if I'm trading, say, 70 markets with my portfolio with 30 years, that's 70 times 30 years of um, possible history, um, which my models are then determining the optimal stop loss. So that, that's how I'm avoiding it being curve fit, because it's applied over such an extensive data sample that the chances of it being curve fit for any specific market or any specific condition is very limited. And um, so that's the way I sort of overcome the um, the overfit um, side of um, my testing. And what I'm finding is that um, I'm also trading in an ensemble of trend-following models, ranging from short to medium to long-term models. So that, therefore, also changes the, um, the stop-loss multiple that's being applied. So all of my models are applying a consistent 25-period ATR, but the multiples that are applied to those um, determining the initial stops might be ranging, say, from 3 ATR up to 8 ATR, but it's dependent on the short-term, the medium-term, or the long-term model where they're fitting. The longer-term models obviously have a, a wider stop, you know, maybe um, 6 to 8 ATR. The medium-term models might have two, uh, you know, something from 4 to 6 ATR, and the short-term models might have 2 to 4 ATR. That, that's sort of how I'm doing it. And so when you talk about loose pants, that's um, that's a principle where we don't want our models to be too prescriptive to a, uh, attacking a particular form of trend. We want them to be able to capture a large variety of different trends, and particularly these material trends that are often very volatile in nature. So you do need this freedom for price to move uh, within within um, constraints. You, you can't... Uh, be, be too, too um, loose pants um, because you don't want to find that after holding your position for six months, um, it goes back to your initial stop. So I've got a trailing stop that also applies this principle of loose pants, but progressively over the course of time, that trailing stop is slowly ratcheting up behind price so that when the trend inevitably turns, not too much profit is taken off the table. And that's obviously also dependent on the long-term, the medium-term, the short-term model. So when I'm applying this as an ensemble, if you could imagine each one of my models has fairly loose pants, but collectively as an ensemble, they have extremely loose pants because they can capture a vast different um, array of different forms of trend uh, with that ensemble of models working. Some will be whipsawed out, others will stay in. So um, that that's how sort of I'm trying to get the best of both worlds, having this massive loose pants with my ensemble and um, giving giving this freedom to move, but also not leaving too much profit on the table when those trends turn. Do you, just out of curiosity of something I don't know myself, um, do you apply different lookbacks for the same type of model, or do you actually say, no, this particular model only trades this time frame, and therefore this this uh, kind of stop rule, uh, and but it's the collection of, many different models with just one single time parameter that makes up the ensemble? I, I suppose, Niels, I've got about five different core models, one being a Donkian breakout model, another being a moving average crossover model, another being a regression trader model, um, a Davis box congestion breakout a model. Uh, there's five models I'm trading, but uh, within that, um, you know, I might be trading up to an ensemble of 10. So some, some of the, the, the models, like the Donkian Breakout, might have two models, one being a, a medium term, one being a long term. Uh, it, it all depends on uh, when I undertake this testing on a yearly basis. As, as, as you know, when new data comes in each year, I'm undertaking this process continually. Sometimes I'll find that the, the models I trade, the 10 models I trade for the next year might have 
Uh, three donkey and breakouts, two moving average crossovers, one regression line trader, one donkey. And it, it's how it sort of all comes out in the wash effectively through the, the testing process of my workflow. I actually don't think I've come across anyone who trades the Davis box uh, breakout, which I think, <laughs> which I think is quite funny because people may not know that Davis. I think he was like a show dancer, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. I think he was, and uh, yeah, it's an it, it's an interesting one because it, uh, a lot of people say, well, that's not really trend following. To and you know, uh, in a way, I tend to agree with them. It is more a momentum trader, but um, the, the Davis box one actually leads me to some of these short-term models, which I'm looking at sort of integrating into my portfolio. But look, I like to say that I'm always trend following. So yeah, I'll, I'll always sort of argue with someone when they say my Davis box is a, is a trend following model. We'll keep it between ourselves, Rich, no worries. Thanks, um, Okay. So uh, the second question that Adam had was, what would you say is a reasonable sample size in real trade observations to compare against backtest statistics to ensure the strategy is performing as expected, i.e. would it be reasonable to compare, say, 100 out-of-sample trades against the backtest statistics, or does this number need to be significantly higher? Once again, thank you for producing such high-quality content. Well, thank you, Adam, for that. Look, personally, for me, no size is long enough as far as a backtest for me. So um, the way I approach these markets, and it's going to come up in the topics we discussed today, Niels, is that I recognize that these markets are these complex adaptive systems. So over the course of time, they adapt and change. They're non-stationary in nature. And the future inevitably is going to be different to the past. So what I'm doing using my backtest for is, uh, is robustness testing, effectively. It's not to have any expectations about what the the, the models are going to deliver in the future, but what it is, it's an environment in which I can stress test and backtest my models with robustness. So the way I approach um, sample size is I prefer to consider it not in terms of sample size, but I prefer to consider it in how many different regimes has your model um, coped over. So um, the reason I say that is that, um, you know, when you get into the world of high frequency trading, you can be in a single regime for a period of two weeks and have a sample size considerably more than what I've got over my lifetime. So what I am concerned with is ensuring that I've got as much history and as much different regimes as possible to stress test my models. So that, that means to me, um, you know, I will always be looking for as much data as as much ways I can stress test my models as possible. So I never get this sense of certainty about, oh, that's a sufficient um, sample size for my models because I've always got in the back of my mind this this understanding of uncertainty and that uh, you know it's best to test it across anything you possibly can um, in terms of liquid financial markets and that that's why I tested across every single one of my markets as well because you know if, if I do have 70 markets and 30 years of history the way you could look at that is um, um, that's 30 years times 70 that's that's giving it 70 times 30 possible years of history of different forms of market regime different forms of condition to test my models on so I'm, I'm a big one for um, huge amounts of data as much as I can get my hands on all right, with that out of the way, Rich, it's time to dive into some of your topics. And today we're going to unravel the mystery of complex systems and why regular math just doesn't cut it. So we're diving into complex adaptive systems, or CAS for short. These are tricky beasts you find everywhere, from nature to the stock market. They're super interesting, but a real headache for the usual number-crunching methods. We especially are going to look at financial markets as a type of CAS. And here's the twist. These markets are always changing and adapting. That means they throw curveballs that standard stats just don't catch, hiding risks we might not see at first glance. So with that very brief introduction, Rich, I'm going to leave it uh, to you and hopefully keep up with you. Okay, Niels. So here we go. So what, what I'm going to do, Niels, is um, I'm going to explain these key properties of complex adaptive systems. And um, uh, these key properties really are game changers in the way we understand syst systems and in the way we, we need to analyze systems. So 
if we can appreciate that these financial markets are these things called complex adaptive systems with these particular properties, it's going to possibly open our eyes to new ways of analysing these markets as opposed to the traditional approaches that that we're often familiar with and what we often hear in our, our, our trading world. So um, I'm going to um, describe firstly the, the five key properties of complex adaptive systems and then give examples from both nature and from the financial markets so we can come to grips with what this means. And then once we understand those five properties of the complex adaptive system, then we're going to look at how traditional models might uh, might uh, lead us into traps if we are using those traditional models as a way to assess these financial markets. So I'll start off talking about these five key properties of complex adaptive systems. And the first one is non-linearity. So non-linearity in a complex adaptive system uh, means small inputs can lead to disproportionately large outputs and vice versa, making their behavior non-predictable and non-linear. So non-linear is this fundamental property found in complex adaptive systems where the relationship between outputs and inputs are not proportional, often leading to these unpredictable and disproportionate outcomes. And non-linearity typically is a result of one-to-many relationships as opposed to one-to-one relationships that exist in complex adaptive systems and can lead to the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. So let's look at firstly what these one-to-many relationships mean, and I'll give you an example. Think of a rainforest where we have a canopy tree in that rainforest. The canopy tree is used by many living systems for a range of different functions. It provides um, a, a place or a habitat for certain species in the canopy tree, it provides a food source for many other species. It provides microclimate regulation, so significantly influencing the rainforest microclimate. It provides nutrient recycling, water cycle contributions, carbon sequestration, support for climbing plants and epiphytes that grow on the canopy tree, and pollination and seed dispersal. Seed dispersal. So, there are many, many different functions assigned to that one canopy tree. And if we were simply dealing with a one-to-one -one function, we wouldn't see these nonlinear relationships. But when we consider all of these different functions, we can see that we might have one-to-many relationships that lead to a complex adaptive system being more than just the sum of its parts. So the multifaceted functions, they contribute to a web of nonlinear relationships and interdependencies leading to the creation of these emergent properties arising from the single canopy tree. So um, when we consider the canopy tree in the rainforest, now we can look at other complex adaptive systems such as a human being, an elephant, a firm, a city, a financial market, or even an artwork. These are all examples of emergent systems whose form and function cannot be fully understood by merely analysing the individual properties of the atoms comprising them. So at the heart of these emergent systems is this one-to-many relationship, and these plural relationships make these complex adaptive systems non-linear in nature, which contributes to their complexity and unpredictable nature. So I'll give you an example of another um, nonlinear system in nature. This is where we get algal blooms in aquatic ecosystems you might have heard of, Neil. So algal blooms occur when there's a rapid increase in the population of algae in water systems. And this is often fueled by excess nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus being added to that water system from sources such as you know, agricultural runoff or sewage. And at first glance, the addition of these nutrients, small as they might be, might seem to be only a minor change. However, this small input can lead to a disproportionately large and often harmful output for that, that aquatic system. So this small increase in nutrient levels leads to a massive growth in algae, which is the output. And um, this then affects various components of the ecosystem, from water quality to the health of the aquatic species, 
and the overall impact on the ecosystem is far greater and more complex than that initial input of those few nutrients going into that system. And this showcases how nonlinear dynamics can lead to unpredictable and substantial changes in these complex adaptive systems. So I've given you a couple of examples in natural systems. So now let's look at examples in the financial market. And maybe, maybe I should just interject here, Rich, yeah. that actually in high school, I wrote a thesis in ecology, but I have to say, I never expected that it was going to come in handy later on in life uh, when listening to you explaining complex adaptive systems. There you go, Neil. See, it all, it all links together. It all links you know, together. Trend following is, yeah, this is the way trend following works. It links everything together. But look, I'll, I'll give you an example of non-linearity in um, the financial markets. And this is uh, the impact of the social media influencer on the stock market. So imagine a scenario in a stock market, uh, which is a typical complex adaptive system, where a relatively small event triggers a disproportionately large reaction. And here's the example I'll give you. A well-known financial influencer posts a mildly positive tweet about a relatively unknown tech company. Now, the environment they're dealing with is a complex adaptive system because it includes stock market participants and all of the social media participants that are linked to the stock market with millions of interconnected participants and variables in that complex adaptive system. So the initial reaction is that a few of their followers buy stock in that company based on that social media uh, influences um, point he made in his Twitter feed or whatever. Then we get amplification as these purchases by those small number of followers increase the stock's activity and it begins to appear on the radars of algorithms and day traders that there's suddenly an increase in activity, buying activity of this stock. Then we get this snowball effect where the increased trading volume and price movement attract more attention. News outlets start reporting on the hot stock, further amplifying interest. And this leads to this disproportionate response. Within hours or days, the stock price skyrockets for far beyond what would be expected from that single social media post. So this is a, a, an illustration of non-linearity where the, the input is small compared to the, um, the vastness of the stock market, for example, yet it led to a massive output, significant stock price increase. And it's also unpredictable because the scale of the response was not proportional to the input, making it highly unpredictable. But in a linear system, a small input would result in a small output. So we now understand what this non-linearity is, which is you find that prevalent in all complex adaptive systems. So we'll move on to the next one. These are these emergent properties. This is another fundamental feature of all complex adaptive systems, emergent properties. These are characteristics that emerge when the system components interact in specific ways. So these emergent properties are not found in the individual agents themselves, but are found in the way these agents interact. And it's a manifestation of the collective properties of a system, not the individuals themselves. For example, the collective behavior of an ant colony, which seems to exhibit intelligence as a colony which is an emergent property not found in the individual ants themselves. So we'll look at that ant colony so we can drill down into what these emergent properties are. So um, if we look at um, each ant in a colony, uh, it, it operates based on relatively simple rules and behaviours driven primarily by you know these basic instincts and pheromones. Individually, ants display simple behavior like foraging for food, carrying materials, or tending to the queen and the larvae. But the collective behavior is different. When these individual um, ants interact and work together, the colony as a whole exhibits behaviors that seem to reflect a higher level of intelligence and complex problem-solving abilities, which no single ant possesses. So I'll have a look at some of these emergent properties. We've got complex nest construction. Ant colonies build elaborate nests with specialized chambers for different functions, despite no single ant having the blueprint for the entire structure. We've got efficient foraging um, strategies where ants find the shortest paths to food sources collectively and communicate this information to other ants, optimizing the colony's foraging efficiency as a whole. 
We've also got adaptive responses to threats. The colony collectively responds to threats or changes in the environment, like relocating the nest or defending against predators in a coordinated manner. So all of these properties are emergent properties. The intelligence of the ant colony is this emergent property. It emerges from the interactions and communications um, among the individual ants themselves. It also has a lack of central control. So there's no central control or leadership directing these complex behaviours of the colony. Rather, they arise from the local interactions themselves and the simple rules followed by each ant. So this example sort of illustrates how emergent properties are a hallmark of a complex adaptive system and they reveal that, that the whole can indeed be greater and qualitatively different than the sum of its parts. And in the case of ant colonies, the collective intelligence and problem-solving abilities are emergent properties that arise from networks of interactions among the individual ants. So that's now looking at it from an example of nature. Now let's look at emergent properties in the financial market. So the concept of emergent properties in financial markets are where interactions between, once again, numerous individual agents, instead of ants, we've now got traders and investors. Uh, we've also got institutions. These interactions lead to emergent behaviours that cannot be attributed to any single participant themselves. And here's how the analogy plays out. So each market participant, whether an individual investor, a large institutional player, or an automated trading system, operates based on their own strategies, goals, and information. These strategies may range from simple buy and hold approaches to, say, complex algorithmic trading, for example. Now, let's look at this as a collective. When these individual agents interact within the market ecosystem, they collectively create market phenomena that no single participant could generate alone. And here, here are some examples of emergent properties market trends and movements. These overall market trends, bull and bear markets, are emergent properties. They result from collective buying and selling decisions of all market participants influenced by a multitude of factors, economic data, company performance, global events, market sentiment, etc. Another emergent property is price discovery. The process of price discovery where the, the market price of an asset is determined is an emergent property. It's the outcome of numerous buy and sell orders interacting in the market. We've also got market sentiment, another emergent property. Collective emotions like fear or greed can drive market rallies or crashes, and these are emergent properties. They arise from collective psyche of market participants reacting to news, rumours, market conditions, etc. We've also got uh, market resilience and crashes, you know, resilience in financial markets or sudden market crashes like 2008 are emergent phenomena. These phenomena result from complex interactions among various, various market players, policies, economic conditions, and so on and so forth. So just like the collective intelligence of an ant colony, the trends, prices, sentiments, stability in financial markets are all emergent properties, and they're not directed by a signal entity, but arise from the intricate web of interactions and transactions among diverse market participants. And this creates complexity and unpredictability because the complexity leads to the unpredictable nature of the markets, like the emergent behaviour in the ant colony. The market's response to a new piece of information or change in policy can be disproportionate, can be unpredictable, reflecting the complex interplay of these individual actions and reactions. So um, that's the emergent properties. That's the second major feature of complex adaptive systems. We've seen this in, in ant colonies and we've seen this in the financial markets. The third very important property is self-organisation. So... Um, a complex adaptive system has the ability to spontaneously create order. And a classic example is the flocking behaviour of birds in nature, where complex patterns emerge, say with the starlings, without any central coordination. Um, this is a, a, an example of self-organisation. So we'll look at this, um, this flocking phenomenon. So when birds flock, 
they form highly coordinated and fluid movement patterns, which we've often seen, which are mesmerate, you know, these mesmerizing, undulating clouds of movement by the birds. You've seen them, Newell's, I've seen them as well. And these rules that the birds are applying are based on simple local interactions. Each bird simply responds to the movement of its immediate neighbour without any awareness of the overall shape or direction, direction of the entire flock. They're looking at these local rules at the individual level. So this emergent flocking behaviour is a collective phenomenon uh, where we get cohesive, aligned and um, avoid, you know, the birds avoid obstacles as an entire unit, but it's not that they've observed those obstacles, it's just that they're obeying these local interactions with their nearest neighbours that allows the entire flock to avoid the obstacle. So this, these principles of self-organisation, uh, when we apply it to the financial markets, here's a couple of good examples uh, when we get to the financial markets. So individual decision-making um, occurs by each individual market participant, where they're making decisions based on you know, their personal strategies, information, goals, etc. Then we get these local interactions, where the, the, these decisions are inf influenced by and influence the decisions of others locally, their neighbours, their friends, their family, etc., much like the birds responding to their neighbours. Traders respond to price movements, news, and other traders' actions. Then we get this emergent market behaviour, the overall trends, market sentiments, movements in the financial markets, they emerge from these myriad of different local interactions. But no single participant or group controls these movements, much like the single bird doesn't direct the entire flock. So that's an example of this self-organisation that we see in complex adaptive systems. The fourth major property is this function of adaption and evolution, hence why they're called complex adaptive systems. So um, complex adaptive systems can learn from their environment and evolve over time, and the financial markets are constantly adapting to new information. Uh, here, here's a really good example um, in the financial markets where financial markets adapt and evolve. So in the early stages of electronic trading, financial markets they were dominated by traditional trading strategies where decisions were often made on slower timescales based on fundamental analysis of companies and markets. We can go back to the 1980s, 1970s. This was the way the markets operated back in those times. But then we got an introduction of new technology where the advent of advanced computing and communications technologies, this, a new form of trading emerged, high-frequency trading using complex algorithms to execute trades at incredibly high speeds, often in fractions of a second. Um, so we have this market adapting and evolving to this new player, this new process, this new behaviour now that has emerged into the market. This is where the system has learned uh, from the environment. As financial markets evolve with these electronic trading platforms, high-frequency trading algorithms began to learn and adapt to market conditions, leveraging speed and efficiency to gain an advantage over traditional trading methods. And the market's response to this was, well, the markets adapted to the process of high-frequency trading. They included changes in market structure, the introduction of um, new order types and trading rules, and adjustments in strategies by traditional traders who now had to account for the impact of the high-frequency traders on market dynamics. We had the evolution of strategies, such as over time, um, HF2 became more prevalent. Its strategies also evolved. This included developments in machine learning, artificial intelligence to analyse market data and execute trades based on complex adaptive algorithms. We got a continuous evolution in the markets. New regulations came into play into the markets to respond to the impact of high-frequency trading in the market. We had uh, further technological advancements in the development of counter-strategies by other part market participants. So these are, are all examples of how complex adaptive systems adapt and evolve over time. And they can be such significant changes in the market that we never get actually a repeat of history. We get a new regime, a totally new arena, a newer environment. And when you look at things in terms of complex adaptive systems, and uh, when we look at things such as the evolution of natural systems, we see this new environment allows new opportunities to flourish, new species to arise, uh, 
traditional species get vanquished or outcompeted by these new emerging species. We can see that this process is this continual sort of continuous adaption and evolution, but it doesn't occur in a gradual way. It often occurs in this punctuated way where we get a period of stability followed then by a major change, evolutionary change to that environment, a new environment evolves, and then we get an explosion of new species, new behaviours, new opportunities. That's the way complex adaptive systems evolve into the future. And this has significant um, um, impacts on the way we've got to consider how we should trade these markets or consider how we should analyse these markets. The last major property of a complex adaptive system are these feedback loops. And um, these uh, feedback loops can either be positive or negative, and they either amplify or they dampen changes within the system. So feedback loops play a crucial role in the dynamics of these complex adaptive systems, including financial markets. And these loops can either amplify positive feedback or dampen negative feedback changes within that system, leading to a variety of different outcomes. So here's an example of a positive feedback loop in the financial markets. Um, this is where we get a rising stock market, for example. Um, initially, we get an increase in stock prices. Suppose a, a particular stock or sector starts to perform well due to strong fundamentals or positive news. We then get investor enthusiasm, and this preference attracts um, this performance attracts more investors, driving up demand and consequently prices. Then we get media attention and hype coming into the market. And as the prices rise, media coverage increases, drawing even more attention and investment to the stock. As we're going through these processes, this is perpetually amplifying the move, amplifying the move. And then we get this continued price rise where the cycle of rising prices attracts more investors, which in turn drive prices even higher in this positive feedback loop. And it can lead to significant overvaluation, bubbles, um, those sort of aspects. But then we can also have negative feedback loops in the market, such as uh, we experience in market corrections, where at some point the market may start to recognise that stock, stock prices are overvalued. Um, it, the selling begins, you know, we've got investors beginning to sell their holdings to realise profits. We get a price drop and then more people sell. The prices start to fall, which triggers further selling. Ultimately, we get stabilisation where the selling and price decline um, it is a negative leap, feedback loop. And this actually helps the market to self-correct, bringing stock prices back to more reasonable levels. So this amplification and dampening uh, uh, these results of this positive and negative feedback loop, and this is a, a critical uh, fundamental property of these complex adaptive systems. So they're the five points, uh, the key properties. So um, before I get into the next phase, Niels, which is now, so saying, what are the pitfalls in the way traditional statistics uh, might be over overlooking some of these important impacts found in complex adaptive systems and what could we do to perhaps um, other ways to look at how we can, um, you know, um, accept that these properties exist and perhaps better manage risk uh, under uncertainty, under these adaptive conditions, that sort of thing. So I'll, I'll go on to that in the next phase. So you're still with me, Niels. I'm I'm still with you, um, and of course, in in the um, you know interest of time here, we will probably only touch on a few things. I think uh, I think getting the fundamental sort of understanding of these uh, five uh, properties are very important, even though it's uh, it's it can feel a little bit heavy uh, listening to it. But one thing, and maybe we can just talk around that uh, at the same time, is that we we talk about all these things that can influence the markets, all these different properties that can influence. And and yet, in some ways, when we talk about uh, our field of investing, so trend following, we kind of talk about the fact that we tend to do the same, meaning, yes, we make tweaks, et cetera, et cetera, but to a large extent, we are certainly applying the same, quote-unquote, golden rules that we have done for, for decades. Sure, we improve, and sure, we have differences in terms of how we manage the trade and so on and so forth. But to a large extent, I think our argument has been that our approach has been able to cope with many different 
regimes and many, which is a result of a lot of these uh, impacts that you talked about. So perhaps you can weave that in a little bit and and maybe just sort of on a high level talk a little bit about some of these um, things that that can deal with or better deal with uh, the shortfalls of traditional statistics uh, in in this case. Well, you, you raise a really good point, Niels, because um, this is where I think trend-following models um, tend to shine or outclass alternative investment processes because trend-following models, at least to my understanding, are based on the principle of a model that can survive over many different forms of different regimes. So uh, the process we use to test robustness for our models is over um, vast back tests, over many different regimes. We've got these very simple models uh, which um, are not over-optimized for any specific market condition. We're not looking at um, you know, finding the most profitable trade in a particular um, period of time based on a pattern. We're looking at something that can survive but can exploit these unpredictable opportunities that we can't predict in advance. And this is where our models differ to um, other models which are targeting a particular edge based on a recurring pattern or feature that they've identified, you know, maybe through pattern recognition or whatever. Uh, our process is, is more sort of aligned to surviving robustly and being in a position to capitalise on opportunity there they're much more adaptable in their ability to adapt to new regimes than um, other models that are more optimised for a particular class of pattern or a particular property of those financial markets. Um, this, is, this is where I think that uh, trend-following models do shine because um, of their ability to withstand the elements effectively and also, um, you know, when these opportunities arise, exploit and capitalise on those opportunities. I'm not sure how to phrase this uh, elegantly, but when I think about trend following and when we talk about it as well, and 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 this kind of comes from the way we we th- I think we think about uh, investing, and that is we say that we are first and foremost risk managers, and we then go on to say that we don't control the performance, but we will take what the market gives us, but we do have some influence on the risk, and that's why we say we first and foremost risk managers. Do you think that maybe that simple but very important starting point, so to speak, compared with maybe other strategies that maybe look at the return potential before they look at the risk, I don't know, um, is what makes the strategy so robust and, as we know, um, where we have you know, uh, track records that goes back, you know, five decades um, and have survived incredibly different uh, market regimes. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree with that because the way I see our models, when we, you know, when, it, when it, we come down to the golden rules, inevitably all of us trend followers, we like cutting our losses short. We do it in different ways, but we all prevent our, our losses from being adverse left tail events. So we're always stunting those losses to a small as um, possible, we are leaving um, ourselves open for unbridled opportunity. And when you look at the nature of these complex adaptive systems, what I've been talking about today, uh, we notice how unpredictable um, these markets are, how, how, how dependent on nonlinear dynamics they are. These, these are the properties that give, um, give these significant opportunities in these financial markets, which you know these traditional models are very poor at navigating. But our particular technique, the golden rules, which which we've sort of we've put it into the furnace at Mount Doom of data testing over huge amounts of, of market regimes, we know that they stand up in this sort of sensitivity test, these robustness tests. They've stand up to all of what history can present in the past, plus more if we've got other different tests we undertake to test for robustness. Um, so you know we know that. They're going to be the cockroach models, the models that survive into the future where other species that are trying to sort of target a particular opportunity or exploit an opportunity, we're a bit more, um, we're a bit more um, suspect about when and where these opportunities occur. We don't like to predict it in advance. We just know that markets have this unbelievable ability to deliver this simply because we understand that there are these complex adaptive systems which have these amazing properties that 
we're not looking at and perhaps the right way. And and that's why I've got so much faith in our models. Um, I, you know, it, it's a bit like the most robust car of the car fleet. That, that's what I think I'm trading when I'm trading my trend following models. Do you think you can just maybe sort of very briefly touch and, and maybe we'll keep sort of the more detailed stuff for, for a later conversation, yes. uh, Rich? But, what, but what just I might maybe- do is I'll, I'll break it down into dot points effectively. Yeah, so I'll, I'll really that. get through this next part. So we're looking at some of the limitations of traditional statistics based on these key properties we've discussed in this podcast, those five key properties of complex adaptive systems. Now, the first thing is a lot of traditional um, statistics deal with linear statistics. Uh, normal distributions. Uh, we're dealing with sharp ratio. That's a linear statistic. Standard deviation. That's a linear statistic. Uh, correlation measures is a linear statistic. We, I've talked uh, at length earlier about nonlinearity and complex adaptive systems. So these linear models aren't necessarily um, capturing that nonlinearity that is expressed in so many complex adaptive systems and these financial markets. So um, you know, in a nonlinear system, uh, the relationship between variables is really a simple linear correlation. Uh, you know, financial markets are influenced by a multitude of interconnected factors, economic indicators, political events, investor sentiment. These factors interact in complex ways. A linear correlation is not going to cut it as far as um, identifying if that relationship is going to persist into the future because we've got this dynamic interplay of all of these interwoven events that's going to shift that correlation around, making it very non-stationary in nature. So all of these, these linear measures are effectively assuming that the market is stationary, and we know that markets are non-stationary in nature, and they can do weird things that we haven't experienced in the historical track record. That's about linearity. So we want to avoid uh, using statistics that, um, well, well if, if we do use these linear statistics, we've got to be aware of the shortfalls of them in dealing in a non-linear environment. The second thing is traditional statistics often deal with what we call reductionary processes. So what, what happens is uh, traditional quant methods, they try and break down systems into simple isolated parts. And in this process of um, analyzing things in these simple isolated parts, they miss the whole interrelationship uh, between agents, between system elements that are so important in complex adaptive systems. And this therefore often means that they totally underestimate risk events because they don't see the interrelationships and dependencies that exist in that, that complex adaptive system. So, um, you know, uh, we see um, analyzing market sectors independently in financial markets is not necessarily a wise practice. So a common method in financial analysis is to examine individual market sectors like technology sectors or healthcare sectors in isolation to assess their performance and risk. But uh, the limitations when we look at it from a complex adaptive system is that this approach overlooks how sectors influence each other. Uh, for instance, a technological breakthrough in the renewable energy sector might significantly impact the oil and gas sector and vice versa. Um, we've also got um, the single factor models that are applied in economics. There's significant limitations to that. So um, this is part of this reductionary approach. In, in economics, these models often focus on single factors like interest rates alone uh, and predict outcomes like investment or consumption based on these single factors. But the limitations in a complex adaptive system is that these um, economic systems are influenced by Many interconnected factors, political events, technological changes, social trends, these factors interact in very complex ways and single factor models simply can't capture that. The other example of the reductionary process at play is where people are looking at things like individual trading behaviour in stock markets. So a reductionary approach would analyse individual trading behaviours to understand market trends. Um, they wouldn't look at uh, how a complex adaptive system views it, where the stock market's movements are the result of collective behaviour, uh, where individual actions are influenced by and influence others in the feedback loop. So that's the second you know, thing we've got to be aware of with these traditional models, this reductionary process. Avoid the process of reduction and analysis because you often miss the important connections and interrelationships that exist in that system. The third 
um, problem of the traditional um, methods is um, related to predictability and determinism. So uh, complex adaptive systems are inherently unpredictable due to their evolving nature. But traditional models, which often seek deterministic solutions, are ill-equipped to handle this um, unpredictability. An example, a dependence on backtests to estimate future returns. The traditional approach uses backtests as a basis to derive an estimate of expected returns in the future or measure risk through variations from expected returns. But the challenge in a complex adaptive system um, is that these systems evolve and adapt over time and the past uh, can be an unreliable guide to the future. New emergent properties arise which significantly reshape trajectories. Uh, as a result, we see new risk events we've never observed in the historical record. So there are many shortcomings when you start looking at the dependence of backtests um, in your, uh, your analytical process. Uh, strategies often are overfit for the past and very underfit for the future. Uh, they carry warehouse risk attributed to events that have never occurred in the past, uh, but they're likely to occur into the future because of the adaptive evolutionary nature of the markets. Uh, we've got things such as you know mean reversion trading strategies. Mean reversion trading strategies, they're based on the assumption that the price of an asset will tend to revert to its historical average over time. Uh, there's a challenge in complex adaptive systems because we know financial markets can experience prolonged periods of trending behavior that significantly deviate from these historical averages. This creates these, these, these risk events for mean reverting systems. Uh, and also, um, uh, we've got a problem with economic e econometric models uh, for market prediction. The traditional approach is that you know uh, economists uh, often use historical economic data to predict market movements, assuming stable relationships between economic indicators and market performance. This is a problem in a complex adaptive system uh, because um, the relationships between these economic indicators and market performance changes over time due to a variety of factors, policy changes technological innovation, and it just goes on and on. Um, and the, the, the fourth major problem um, associated with a traditional way of looking at these markets is it overlooks these emergent properties that we're talking about. Um, by focusing on individual components, traditional methods often miss behaviours that are crucial to understanding a complex adaptive system. Um, emerging properties relate to these complex behaviours and patterns that arise from the interactions of multiple market participants, etc. Uh, we've got market sentiment and herding behaviour. These are all emergent behaviours which need to be taken seriously by traditional economic models. We've got systemic risk. Uh, traditional uh, analysis focuses on risk profiles of individual financial institutions or, or instruments. But um, it, in complex adaptive systems which have emergent properties, systemic risk often emerges from a network of interconnections in the financial system, the failure of a specific broker, and it cascades across the entire financial system because of these interrelationships and interconnectedness. You now we get the major broker collapse or the Lehman Brothers collapse, and it infects the entire financial system. The, far, the, the last point, Niels, before I close up on this is this historical dependency because um, um, Complex adaptive systems, um, they all are influenced by their past states, a factor that many traditional models do not adequately account for. This is this process we talked about previously, Neil, called serial correlation. Uh, we, dependent on the sequence of events, when they arise and what type of events they are, they do shape future events. Um, so there is this historical connection. We can't just assume that um, there is no significance in past events. They they carry um, a momentum signature. They carry signatures that do actually um, go into the future to create these un unusual future trajectories. Uh, we, for example, consider the impact of long-term economic cycles, such as those described by uh, in your book, the fourth turning, Niels, in the fourth turning where uh, we have uh, Western capitalist economies experience long waves of booms and busts lasting, you know, between 50 to 60 years between these events. These are all these sort of these historical dependencies that exist in the market that actually influence future states of the market. Um, we've got path dependence in asset prices. We don't need to go into that. We've talked about that enough on this episode, Niels. Uh, impact of past financial crises. So 
the influence of crises like 2008 global financial crisis on, on subsequent regulatory changes, investor behavior, market structure. These all have influences into the future. So, so Neil, so the, the problems with these traditional models is that they're not addressing some of these key features of these complex adaptive systems. But there are um, particular processes we could be looking at and perhaps should be more strongly looked at. I won't go out into a detail, but agent-based models is a, is a really interesting area that, um, um, when undertaken correctly, can um, um, take heed of all of these, these properties we're seeing in this complex adaptive system, where we use these agent-based models, where the agents consist of various types of trading agents. And you do this in a computerized environment, where um, you include different um, populations of different behavior of traders, um, who base their decisions on different different aspects, uh, such as fundamental value. We have noise traders in the mix uh, with, who make these random uninformed decisions. We've got technical traders who are relying on historical patterns. When we put these collections of participants into uh, these agent-based models, uh, we get this uh, these relationships and independencies all developing in these computer, computerized simulations which start showcasing these uh, periods of boom and bust that aren't being picked up by these traditional models. It's showcasing a lot of the symptoms we've been talking about here. So it's a really exciting area, these agent-based models, and that's possibly where the future of, of understanding these markets, there might be more emphasis placed on this um, in the future rather than the traditional focus on, say, the linear models and those sort of things. But look, I'll leave it there, Niels. And, and so we, we've explored a lot in this episode. Um, I, I probably haven't been able to do justice to it totally, but I think I've got across the main points here. And um, yeah, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, this stuff is is complex. And I think uh, even for people who are uh, have been in the trend-following world for a long time, some of the things that you are bringing to light, I think, uh, is um, looking at this from a from a different perspective, explaining it uh, with different words, different term terminologies than maybe uh, most of us have been uh, doing when we're thinking about quote unquote a simple strategy such as trend following. So it's super important, but it's also very it can be very um, difficult to um, to absorb and and therefore it's a conversation that needs to. To continue, so to speak, and and I really appreciate you um, helping all of us to uh, to appreciate the challenges, but yet also that there are solutions and and solutions that, in a sense, um, we as an industry have been embracing, maybe without um, thinking about it in the terms that you explain and how you link it back to to nature uh, makes it uh, obviously um, understandable that these forces are probably never going to go away which is the whole reason why trend following continues to work it is based on uh, well i say human behavior even though we've talked about the rainforest and uh, and ants which is not quite humans but but uh, it is um, incredibly important to uh, to understand that it, it, what, what i find interesting is if we go back to katie kaminsky's podcast um when she was talking about the, the properties of trend-following models, their adaptiveness, their flexibility, those points that she raised, if you refer to those points, you'll see that those points are fully embedded within these complex adaptive systems. And I often feel the trend-following, out of all of the strategies I know about, and I know quite a few of them, this is the one most aligned to what we're talking about um, in a way to navigate this uncertainty in these complex adaptive systems. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree, and um, and I think also I think most of the of of, uh, of the people uh, following these conversations and listening to us, I mean, they will, for the most part, uh, either have experienced or at least heard of the great financial crisis and how it just felt very different from many other crises because you suddenly were seeing banks you know go down and what effect did that have on other banks and so on and so forth and then the whole financial system became very fragile and so it's certainly for me maybe the easiest way to think about this complexity and how changes in one part of the system can have huge effects on other parts of the system and it goes back to what i often say which is not a very elegant way of, of putting it but it's this imagining the unimaginable i mean i think this is actually what we need to be we what we need to build into our 
investment strategies are strategies that can essentially cope with the unimaginable because every time we have a crisis or you could say in in a day-to-day sense there's always something new that we haven't seen before and that's obviously what makes uh, investing super uh, challenging but also where where these kind of rules uh, come into play and 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 why they're so critical to long-term success at least those are my thoughts rich um, as i said much appreciated now in a couple of weeks we'll be releasing our annual year-end conversations we're going to do that they're going to be the last two weekend episodes uh, of the year and i would appreciate if uh, if our listeners have any topics that they would suggest that we dive into something that we i mean we're going to be a lot on the on the recordings we're going to be all of the co-hosts uh coming on so there should be something for for everyone um, but of course it's important to find some topics that um that uh, is of interest to uh, to the listeners so if you want to send me uh, at info at toptradersonplug.com something that you think um, many of us uh, could chime in on that you find uh, really um, important uh, at this point in time, uh, ideally related to trend following or volatility or something like that, we'll certainly do our very best to uh, to bring it up. But of course, I can't promise that all of the topics that we receive uh, will be uh, will be discussed, but we'll do our very best. And of course, we appreciate if you would share and rate and review uh, these episodes because it is so uh, helpful uh, to us in order to continue to grow the show. Next week, I'm joined by Nick Baltus from Goldman Sachs. So that will be your chance to get him to answer some of your question. Uh, so feel free to email them to the usual uh, email address, info at toptradersonplug.com. Rich, thank you ever so much for this masterclass in complex adaptive systems. Uh, this is definitely your 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 home field, and uh, and I look forward to continuing to explore this and uh, and better appreciate uh, myself uh, some of these uh, really fascinating aspects uh, of the markets. So thanks again, Rich, for for doing that. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.